We've already beat them, haven't we? Because of the resurrection of Christ, because of the death on the cross, His resurrection on the third day, we've already beat them. And I say, brother, start recruiting because you're going to need some help. Because <laughs> the army of God's coming loose. And when we turn loose, church, it's going to be exciting. I hope you're a part of that loose part of the church that gets turned loose and you're on fire for God. Because that's the way it's supposed to be. And then the second thing I was reminded of is we've got a little fellow here that just turned 16. Is that right? How old is he today? 16? Ooh. Brother, Brother Braden is 16 today. We probably should sing, Happy Birthday. Happy Birthday to you. Happy Birthday, dear Braden. Happy Birthday. And many more. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough of that. <laughs> All right. Okay, now that we've thoroughly embarrassed him, <laughs> we can move on. Praise the Lord. And if you've never been kissed, Brother Braden, I think there's people standing in line ready to help you with that too. So, of course, your mother will need to approve, and that could be dangerous. If you have your Bibles, let's hold them up. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, high five, give a fist pound, reach over and hug your neighbor, whatever you need to do. That'll be awesome. That'll be awesome. Is that not fun watching Mariah walk around the church building? I just love it. That's what it's all about right there. Life question number six, our last one in our series. We started uh, 1st of August. Uh, we're ready to launch into a new series next week. Um, many of you have hopefully picked up a black wristband on the back uh, table they, like this. We have cut into the wristband the name River Oaks. And then on the other side, it says overflow. And we're going to talk about worship. What is real worship? When I was in Bible college, we had a, a preaching professor, and he challenged us to define what preaching was. And we were all young Bible college students eager to please the professor, and so we all thought of some great theological answers, and we threw them out there like we were really profound. And he said, after a while, letting us go on and rant and rave and all that stuff and try to impress, he said, well, let me suggest to you what I think preaching is. So out come the pens because we're ready to write down the, this in our, in our uh, notebooks and be ready to regurgitate it back. He said, preaching is your overflow from your encounter with the Word of God. Is that not a great definition? Well, I've carried that a step further, and we're going to talk about how worship becomes our overflow from our encounter with God. Because if we're worshiping in the right way, there will be a lot of praise going to God. So we're going to talk about the facets of making real worship an overflow expression for us. I also have some invitation cards, some invite cards on the back table Please take three or four or five of these and pass them out to your friends. Let's have a record group 
uh, uh, next Sunday. I've asked you over this course of the summer who you're going to invite uh, to come with you next week, and I've, there's about uh, six of you that have listed a couple of people that you're bringing, so I'm looking for an extra 12 people. But if every one of you would bring one person next week, we'd have to carry chairs in to sit them. Wouldn't that be awesome? Hey, we can do it. Why can't we do it? Let's do it. And you might say, Preacher, well, you're all already getting off on numbers. Well, every number represents a soul, and I want to do what I can to get the Word of God into every soul that we can find. Satan's recruiting. <laughs> Satan's recruiting. You and I need to be recruiting as well. And we recruit more with our lives than our words, but we've got to encourage them to come. Amen? 85% of people come to Christ because somebody invited them to come. They'll come to church when you invite them. Well, I've been inviting. They won't come. Keep inviting. Don't give up. Keep, keep inviting. The World Christian Encyclopedia says, Christianity has become the most universal religion in history. With believers today, a majority of the population in two-thirds of the world's 238 countries. We're going to talk today about are all religions equal? Before I go much further, how many of you believe that every all religions are equal? Anybody? <laughs> I didn't think I'd get a show of hands. I just thought I'd throw it out for fun. A survey was done by Associated Press that reveals some interesting information about Christianity. Let me give you two quotes from it. Christianity began and ended the century as the world's biggest religion with 555 million believers, or 32.2% of the world population. And that was in 1900. And in the year 2000, there was 1.9 billion, or 31% of the population. Isn't that amazing? Also, it, it went on to say, those Christians are divided among 33,820 denominations or similar distinct organizations. Some, eight, some 386 million believers are in independent churches. We're an independent church. We're not a denominationally structured church. We don't have any denomination hierarchy around us or over us. We decide what we do. We decide who we support. We decide that as a church. But when you look at the self-described Christian denominations throughout the world, it shows tremendous diversity. Listen to this. 130, there are 135 Catholic, Anglican, or Orthodox denominations, 72 Lutheran and Reformed denominations, 38 Presbyterian denominations, 52 Brethren and Congregationalist denominations, 24 Methodist denominations, 16 Holiness denominations, 96 Baptist denominations, 98 Pentecostal denominations, 17 Mormon denominations, 100 plus distinct unclassified denominations. And then there's thousands, thousands of independent churches with no formal denominational label. And so if you were to look at this grouping and this list, you would see that uh, spirituality is booming, not only in America, but around the world. If you're seeking a spiritual connection as a person, there is a buffet for you to draw from. But with so many groups and beliefs, there's no wonder that there's so much confusion out there. And confusion about God. Our culture has come to believe several myths 
about religion in America. And these false conclusions are reflected in much of the religious polling that's done today. I want to share with you five major popular myths about religion in America. Myth number one, there's no way to know who's right. 12% of Americans believe that no religion is valid. Myth number two, it is arrogant to suggest that you alone have the truth. Surprisingly, only 12% believe that only their religion is right. Myth number three, all religions basically teach the same thing. Nearly three out of five, 59% believe that all religions are equally valid. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, we're all the same. Myth number four, I can be spiritual without being religious. <laughs> One quarter of Americans call themselves spiritual but not religious. Another 15% of so-called believers in God do not identify with any religion. Myth number five, it doesn't make a difference anymore. anyway. One out, of every, one out of two rarely or never attend a worship service. <laughs> Which leads us to some interesting questions. These myths do. The first question, what gives legitimacy to a religion? Is the concept of God enough to unite us? Are there multiple paths to God? What distinguishes Christianity from all others? Isn't sincerity enough? Why does that matter at all? Let me address that last question by giving you four keys. Four keys to understanding religion and the significance of properly believing. Number one, a religion's validity depends on the object of its worship and adoration. We're going to be in the book of Acts in chapter 17. We've looked at this before, but I think it bears looking at again because it's really an important section of Scripture. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to pick it up at verse 16. If you have your Bibles and turn there, that would be awesome. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Jump down to verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows, Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. False gods have always existed. Paul indicated that idolatry grows out of both rebellion against the Lord and a darkened heart that desires to pursue unrestrained sin just read Romans 1 consider the objects that people worship they come from one of five sources one source is signs of nature animals, plants, the stars phenomenon such as lightning a second source is creation of idols they create them themselves or imaginations or images the third source is the elevation of humans or human passions. The Greeks were good at this and still are. That what you decide is most important. The fourth source is worship of spirits or of Satan. As was mentioned earlier, Satan's satanic church is coming to 
the uh, Civic Center or, or the Civic, uh, one of the Oklahoma Civic areas down meeting places in Oklahoma City. They're coming to the state capitol. They're coming to recruit. Let's just pray. We need to pray that that never happens. We need to pray that they can't find anybody willing to jump on, jump on board. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, most people are living like the devil anyway. They just don't want to be identified with it. Can we get an amen? <laughs> Present company excluded, of course. Amen. That's right. They're a heavy amen on that. Amen. Then the last one, the last source is the revelation of God. One of the questions we have to answer before a skeptical world is what does it matter what you call God? Aren't we all praying to the same thing? It matters because the object of our worship determines whether it's legitimate. If a man is in a jungle and he cuts a limb from a tree and he cuts the limb in half, he throws one half on the fire and carves the other half into an idol for his house, that object of his adoration is the work of his hands. Such an object of worship is illegitimate and unworthy of one's love and affection. Carving a stick or sculpturing a stone will not make it a God despite no matter what you call it. A religion's credibility depends on the reality of the God it worships. The first four objects of worship listed uh, that I mentioned earlier, that I've listed for you, depends on the reality of the God that it worships. And, and there's nothing more than, man, these are nothing more than man-made inventions, these first four. Imaginations of God. God is more than we can see or we can touch. In answer to that, to a critic, Abraham Lincoln asked, How many legs does a cow have? Four was the reply. If you call her tail a leg, how many does she have? Five was the answer. No, said Lincoln, just calling a tail a leg doesn't make it so. Second key to understanding religion is that one, the one true God is more than the common denominator of conflicting denominations or religions. Let's pick it up at verse 23 of chapter 17, the book of Acts. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, as one of your altars had the inscription to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Now, 24, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since He is Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve His needs, for He has no needs. He Himself gives life and breath to everything, and He satisfies every need. What is it that makes people think that all religions are basically the same? They believe that all religions have one common denominator, and that's the concept of God. But as we've already seen, a mere concept of God doesn't necessarily equate with God. God makes six claims in this chapter of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 17 he makes six claims that we need to remember in verse 24 Paul uses the phrase the God so in essence there's only one God when he says the God it's exclusive also in verse 24 Paul uses the phrase God does not dwell in temples 
So in other words, God dwells somewhere beyond here. He's in heaven. He's overseeing. He sees it all. He's in control of all. We also see in verse 25 and verse 29, God is not the creation of human hands or thoughts. When Paul says the divine nature is not like an image fashioned by human art or imagination. In verse 25, God is self-existent. Paul says it this way, as though He needed anything. In verse 28, God is the source of all life. When Paul says, in Him we live and move and exist. And then verse 30, God demands exclusive allegiance where Paul writes, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Not a few people, not some people, all people everywhere to repent. God, according to His self-revelation, exceeds all human understanding. Any religion that rejects His self-revelation is simply an invalid religion. It reminds me of what Joshua challenged the people of Israel in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua in verse 15. You'll remember this verse. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which, are your, which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. Amen. Third key to understanding religion is that Jesus distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Pick it up at verse 18. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and His resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Jump down to verse 31. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Everyone has an opinion about Jesus. The Jews say he was a good teacher, a prophet, but not the Messiah. The Hindus say he is not God, but one of many avatars, many saviors of Vishnu. Buddhists say he was a good teacher, but lower than Buddha. Muslims say he was a prophet, but lower than Muhammad. All that contrasts with Christianity, who says Jesus is the son of the living God. Jesus is the central figure of our faith. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.23 tells us that to reject Jesus is to reject God altogether. Here's what he said. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. <laughs> you can't have God if you reject Jesus. Well, I love God, but I don't know about this Jesus guy. Well, you're lost altogether. Even a proper view of Jehovah that rejects Jesus is insufficient for salvation. For Jesus is the one who paid the price for our redemption. But what is it about Jesus that makes him distinct from other religious teachers? Many claim they're gods or that they are godly. But what distinctions... Are there between Christ and them? Well, there's four. He had a sin, 
a sinless life. If you study Muhammad, you'll find out that he was less than stellar as he grew up. About Jesus, what distinguishes him from the others is that he then provided a substitutionary death for us. He took the sins of the world upon himself at the cross so that we could have hope. Thirdly, his bodily resurrection. Ours is the only religious leader who walked this earth who you can't find residue of his body in a tomb anywhere. You can't find it. Ours is the only one. Now you say, preacher, have you seen that? Well, as a matter of fact, I believe I have. And I'm hoping next spring to take some of you so you can go see it also. Because when you walk in that tomb in Israel, in Jerusalem, and you come out of that tomb, <laughs> you're, it's different. The hair will stand up on the back of your neck because you've been in the presence where Jesus was. I hope you'll go with me. It's going to be a great trip. It's going to be a great trip. But the fifth, or the fourth distinguishing mark that distinguishes him between other religions and other deities and other gods is that he offer, his offer of forgiveness by grace through faith. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation. Other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of returns from death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. C.S. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eight, eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law each offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. And then the fourth key to understanding religion is that eternity hinges on the God that you follow. Pick it up at verse 26. From one man's, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and, and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. Someone might ask, why can't we just be open-minded, tolerant, and accept anything as God? Well, the answer is that eternity hinges on the ability of your God to save you. Jesus said that humans are, uh, are on one of two roads in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. You're either on the wide path that leads to destruction or the narrow path that leads to heaven. 
And what did he say? Many will choose which road? The wide one. Satan doesn't need to do recruiting. It's already a wide road and there's a bunch of them on it. But it's sad that Satan's going to make it public that he's out recruiting and there'll be people who will follow into him. Why? Because we've done a lousy job of making Christianity appealing. It's our fault. Well, it's not my fault. I didn't do nothing. That's right. That's why. <laughs> you didn't do nothing. Does that make sense? Do they see Jesus in us? They ought to. In fact, 2 Corinthians says that, that we ought to be a reflection of Christ. His glory should shine through us so people see Him. Woo! <laughs> what do they see when they look at us? Not much different than what they see in the world. If you examine all religions, you'll find that they fit into one of two categories. Either they're works-based or they're faith-based. How can you know which religion is right? The ultimate test of a religion is really simple. When you come to death, can your God deliver? When you come to death, can your God deliver? Perhaps you've heard of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a scientist and philosopher of the 17th century. And in seeking to disarm religious skeptics, he penned the logic that if God does not exist... One loses nothing by believing in Him. But if God does exist, one can gain eternal life by believing in Him. And then he argued that belief in God is the only logical response. As the worship team comes to help me close, I want to finish with this story. When Nard Pagayo was about six years old, a tall, pale white man stumbled into his home village in Dibagat in the northern jungles of the Philippine island of Luzon. The man didn't speak their language. So the village elders asked him the best way they knew how, Why are you here? And I want to pick up Nard's comments. He said, I've, I've come to learn your language, the man said. I'd like to write it down and then give you God's word in your language. We started teaching this man, Dick Rowe, our language, and maybe his God could free us from the spirits. Nard continues, When I was about 13, Dick had, had to return to the United States to raise support for his ministry. And before he left, he translated the Gospel of Mark and gave me a copy. Sitting on top of a rock, I read the Gospel of Mark in my heart language. It felt, I, it felt like I was actually there seeing the characters. The further I read, the more distressed I felt. A mob of people came to get Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do wrong? They accused him of all kinds of false things. They mocked him, spit on him, beat him, and took him before Pilate. And then came the scourge and the crown of thorns. It was excruciating to read that they forced him to carry a wooden cross. And then they nailed him to it. Deep in my heart, I hated a God. And I hated that God. And my hatred swelled. I, I shook my fist and I shouted, I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a powerless God like you? I threw the Gospel of Mark down on the rocks and started walking home. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't protect His own Son. I mean, our headhunters defended us to the death. And because of them, no one could touch us. I wanted a God like that. Someone who would protect me from the spirits that demanded we sacrifice our cows, chickens, pigs, and dogs. 
This God didn't even save His own Son. And then suddenly, God reached down into my heart and Arden said, and God said, don't you understand? I heard Him say, that's how much I love you. I gave my Son on your behalf. And for the first time, I understood grace. I understood how much God loved me. God, if you love me that much, I prayed, I want to give you my life, my heart. It's all yours. I went back and began to read further in Mark, and I read that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. Nobody in all of Dibagat, nobody from among the Isnag people had ever risen from the grave. The resurrection day and the resurrection story changed my life. I'm here to tell you, your religion, your faith in Jesus Christ supersedes everybody else. Why? Because of the resurrection. You have hope. I have hope because of the power of the resurrection. Death can't grab us anymore. Death can't touch us anymore. We can smile in the face of death because that's the way God is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we ask You this morning to be very real in the lives of Your people that are here today. God, we need a special touch from You today. We need to hear from You today. And God, if it's possible, maybe there's somebody here today that needs to respond to You in a personal way. Maybe there's someone in this room that really is wrestling with who is the Lord of their life. Who's the Master and Savior in their life. Would love the chance to sit down and study Scripture with them so they understood what that meant more. Father, there might be a, another person in the church here that needs to say they want to join this church. They want to be a part of the membership of this church. And God, the requirements that you put in Scripture, in your Word, are that people make a confession of faith and, Father, also that they've been baptized and connected to your death, burial, and resurrection. But, Father, none of that's important until the heart's been convicted and the heart's been changed. So, God, there might be somebody here that understands that and wants to make that a part of their life. But, God, I think there's probably even a bigger group that's just here that needs to be prayed for. They're just struggling with day-to-day -day life. They're struggling with finances. They're struggling with family. They're struggling with paying loans. They're struggling with making house payments. Struggling getting food on the table. God, I just pray that you will minister to them in every way possible. And Father, we as a church can minister to them as well. So Father, would they let us know where their needs are so that we can do our best to at least try to help. We may not can meet all that need, but we can sure try to help. So God, I just pray that today, if somebody has a decision and needs to make a decision, would you give them courage to do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.